Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning. May I welcome you to our service as well, and I'd love to invite you to settle down for a story. In Daniel chapter 2, we are taken on a magical mystery tour in Babylon many thousands of years ago. But I must warn you that this trip to Disneyland, where dreams really do come true, might just crush a few of our childhood beliefs. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and he stood before the king, he said to them, I had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turn into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. How strong is your immune system? And I don't necessarily mean your biological immune system. I mean the systems that you've put in place in order to protect yourself against crisis or catastrophe. In this story, we're introduced to the people in Babylon who you would have assumed had the strongest immune systems in that regard, and they would have thought the same. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the most important and powerful superpower of the day, who has all the wealth and all this authority, people have to ask to come into his presence. He has control over armed forces. He could have easily assumed that he was indestructible or invulnerable to any kind of attack. His advisers, who weren't born into royalty, they have achieved their way into the palace through their own grit, their hard work, their determination, their brain power, their enthusiasm or motivation, whatever it was. Now they've got this success success and status in the nation. They've got huge amounts of authority and they've got a brilliant future ahead of them. There's even Daniel and his friends who have experienced this amazing blessing from God in chapter one and kind of could be resting on their laurels a little bit and thinking, well, yesterday's blessing is probably going to protect us today. We're probably immune to any sort of crisis that might come around the corner uh, because God's on our side. This story illustrates that really no one is immune to crisis and God illustrates that fact with just a little dream, a little dream that he sneaks into the head of the king. Now, I've been thinking about this, and I think it is genius. Why why does he use just a little dream? Well, the philosopher Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, and someone asked him the question, why the word conspiracy? And he says, well, God's kingdom comes, for this period of time at least, always as a conspiracy. It's always under the radar because if God came with power, if he had sent an army of angels to Babylon, he would have forced everyone's hand. 
They would have had no free will how to respond because it would have been forced out of them. Simple submission to the power of God. But working in this way really highlights and illuminates people's genuine heart condition. It allows them the free will to choose how they're going to respond to the living God. And the rest of this story is really seeing how people do respond to God and when God starts working. So I think it's remarkable for that reason. I think also it just highlights the fact that the rich and the powerful, the young and the youthful, sometimes need to be shaken up that bit more than perhaps the vulnerable or the poorer in society. Because they're the ones who are likely to just assume they're going to be fine in the face of crisis and that things can't touch them. With one little dream, God shapes the entire palace system and everyone inside. And notice how they respond. Nebuchadnezzar, with all this power, all this might, suddenly panics because he realises there is one who is bigger than him. And he has no control. He thought he could say who came into his presence and who couldn't. But this one could sneak into his bedroom like a thief in the night and implant a little dream into his brain. Or the advisors who suddenly realise that no matter how big their brains, that can't stop their heads being chopped off if Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind suddenly. They had their amazing futures ahead of them. They had this amazing life, this status, incredible promotion, and this sort of flourishing existence carved out in front of them. And it was all being taken in an instant. And how do they respond? Well, it seems, in simple terms, procrastination. They try and distract themselves. They try and distract the king. They say, let's think about something else. Come on, give us an extension. Give us some help in this. Because that's very typical. People don't like being faced with the reality of crisis, especially things like death. And so they procrastinate. They pretend it's not there. They think about other things. They occupy themselves in so many different ways so as not to confront the reality of the situation. That there is one crisis that every single one of us faces. Whether it's sooner with the death of relatives or whether it's our own death. There is that one catastrophe, that one crisis, death, which will come for all of us. And none of our systems that we've put in place can protect us from it. I think the initial question that this passage is asking is, one, do you recognise that you are not immune to crisis? And two, what is your response to that reality? Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream. And I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans.
Now imagine that Nebuchadnezzar did what he usually did. He wakes up in the morning and he tells his dream to his advisors, who've been trained specifically for that kind of thing. Um, and they go away to a separate room and uh, put the message out to all the other advisors and say, right, let's get together and let's work out, let's come up with an interpretation for the king. And Daniel had had his experience with God and he comes into the room as well. He's, he's in the mix. And they all share their ideas. And Daniel says, well, God has told me that it means this. And some of them in the room are like, that's very helpful. Thank you for your input. Some of them are like, you're being a bit dogmatic there. You're being a bit intolerant to our ideas. Let's let's blend. Let's take a few good bits from what you've just said. But let's really sort of um, incorporate everyone's ideas. And then we come up with a reasonable suggestion and we take it to the king. And that's essentially how man-made religion works. It's human reason above everything. Uh, it's the way of accessing knowledge is through human reason and our own rational thinking. God works through a, an unreasonable dictator in order to, I think, highlight the limitations of human reason. There are many people who believe that that is the greatest extent of knowledge. That's what, that's the way of knowing things in this universe is through human reason and through our own research and our own scientific thinking and that kind of thing. And this way of blending all the ideas together would have completely ignored the fact of revelation, that it is possible for God to speak to a human being. But that idea was not allowed on the table as we can see in verse 11. Notice how dogmatic the advisors become when the concept of revelation is introduced. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks us to do is difficult. Now, the New Living Translation picks up on the idea of it being impossible, they're suggesting, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. But the problem is, the gods don't dwell with flesh. The gods aren't interested in us. They don't live with us. They don't speak to us. We cannot know what the gods know because they don't reveal it to us. So the, the best we've got is human reason. And I would want to ask them the question. How did you come to that conclusion? Who told you that? Who told you that the gods or God don't reveal things to human beings? Who told you that the, the greatest thing that we've got is human reason? How do you know this? And I think the answer potentially would have been, well, everyone knows that. That's assumed. That's what we've grown up thinking. It's, it's innate in us, isn't it? It's the most reasonable thing. It's self-evident that what we've got is human reason. There's no such thing as revelation from God. That's obvious. It's just the most reasonable conclusion, they might have said. And that conclusion almost got them killed and was very quickly proven to be completely false. See, God worked in this way in order to undermine their belief, their faith in human reason. Now, this story and the Bible as a whole and Christian teaching is not anti-reason. But it does want to challenge you to ask the question, what is the reason for your beliefs? Why do you believe what you believe? 
and the way that God works through Nebuchadnezzar giving him a secret dream in the middle of the night that is just trapped in his own head forces everyone in the palace to start asking the right question. One of the questions I have enjoyed to share when speaking about um, faith in Jesus is, do you think it's possible to know God? Um, and see this, I like this question because it, it gets beyond faith as just a means of um, avoiding hell and getting into heaven. And it gets really to the heart of what Jesus talked about when he talks about eternal life and being saved and being rescued as, as, as human beings. Because Jesus actually says in John that eternal life is knowing God. See, God goes to great lengths throughout the Bible to describe just how relational he wants to be with us. Uh, right at the beginning of the Bible, we are made, uh, Adam and Eve are made in the garden to walk with God and to know him. God, throughout the Bible, describes himself like a father, um, like a brother, even like a, a mother hen looking after her chicks. And the fact that God is relational and that to be rescued and saved and forgiven is relational makes all the difference. So yes, when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies for our forgiveness. And yes, he opens up the way to life eternal, uh, life forever. But the life that we are welcomed into is relationship with God himself, knowing God. This is the beauty, this is the joy of uh, the Christian life. And the amazing thing is, is that it's free because Jesus has done everything to absorb the punishment um, of our wrongdoing um, so that we can freely be reconciled and brought at peace with God to enjoy him forever. Now, if it is not possible to know God, then the suggestion that people often make of, hey, find whatever works for you, whether it's religion, whether it's lifestyle, whether it's having a great family, a great career, whatever it, may, whatever it might be, whatever works for you, whatever gives you meaning and purpose, go with that. That makes absolute sense in a universe where it is not possible to know God. But if it is possible to know God, then that suggestion of, hey, just go with whatever works for you, suddenly sounds extremely unreasonable, false, and like in this story, potentially fatal. At this point in the story, we are being challenged to simply answer the question, what is actually true? And do you believe it? Do you live by the truth? Daniel's answer to that question is a resounding yes. We see later on in verse 28, he concludes, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that underlying belief drives everything that Daniel does throughout this whole book. It is the foundation that it is possible to know God. There is a God in heaven and he speaks to us. We can know what he is thinking. And that is very good news 
as we find out in this next part of the story. This next part of the story is a long bit, six, seven minutes long, but it is gripping. It is brilliantly told, and Liz James has read it for us fantastically well. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious, he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends would not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the Visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your Majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made 
of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it for the king. Your Majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron, and iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not be united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, there is a deep desire in all of us to not look stupid. And I think on surface level things, that's good, that's helpful. Um, but when it comes to our faith and what we believe and what we speak about, we do need to be careful because in our desire to not look stupid, there is a danger of removing elements of our belief of what Christianity teaches that are absolutely essential and core to the message. And we need to be very careful that we are not so driven by not wanting to look stupid that we remove Jesus from the equation or we turn him into something that he was not. This uh, short clip is from an amazing interview that I watched between a, an evangelist called Glenn Scrivener and a popular author and historian called Tom Holland, who's just written a book called Dominion about how Christianity has so radically shaped Western society. And I just find it a fantastic and brilliant encouragement to preach the weird stuff about Jesus. 
you would like to see Christians uh, preach what? what? What would you like to see Christians well, say? Well, well, I, I, th- I, th- I see no point in, in, in bishops or preachers or you know, Christian evangelists just recycling the kind of stuff that you can get from any <laughs> kind of soft left liberal. Yes. Because that's everyone is giving that. You know, yes. if I want that, I'll I'll I'll, yeah. I'll hear. You know, I'll get it from a liberal democrat councillor. Yes. If if you're a Christian, you think that the the entire fabric of the cosmos was ruptured mm. when by this strange singularity where someone who is a god and a man sets everything on its head yes and the you know there is a that to say it's supernatural is is to downplay it i mean mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is a massive singularity at the very heart of things yeah. and if you don't believe that it seems to me you're not really a, a, a confessional christian you may be a cultural christian but you're not a confessional christian yes so if you believe that then it should also be possible to dwell on all the other weird stuff mm. that um <laughs> that comes as part of, traditionally come as part of the Christian package. Yes. So I, I think that um, it seems to me purely, largely from a kind of cursory listening and thought for the day, that there's, <laughs> there's a deep anxiety about that. A right. deep, almost a sense of embarrassment. Yes. That, um, you, know, ooh, you know, Jesus is really just a nice guy. Right. Um, a bit more than that. Now think how stupid Daniel would have looked walking up to Nebuchadnezzar's palace or throne room with the advisors around him. And he says to them, don't worry, I've got the answer from heaven. It's about a rock smashing a big giant statue. They would have thought, you ought to have your head chopped off, mate. Good luck. Now think how stupid they would have looked when he walked out a little bit later from the throne room, smiling, saying, Turns out God did actually speak to me. I got it right. Now think how stupid Jesus would have sounded when he said this to the religious rulers of his day. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus, with his band of merry men, using language from Daniel, predicting the future, is claiming that his little mob of people were going to smash the religious institutions of the day. They were going to crush them unless they joined him and followed him. Now think how stupid he would have looked and sounded saying that kind of thing. And then think how stupid he would have looked hung naked on a cross, dripping with his own blood and other people's spit. Now with no followers, that band of merry men that had looked so threatening, now had all run away. He was there alone, with just his mum and a few people looking up at him, naked, totally forlorn. Think how stupid he would have looked as he's being buried in the tomb. But then think how stupid the critics would have felt when three days later he was risen from the grave and God had vindicated him. It turned out 
that God was actually on his side and that he was right and that he had died for their sins and he was still offering them forgiveness. It's a ridiculous message, but sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. And the challenge throughout this whole message at the moment is, do you believe the truth? Do you know the truth? Because it is only the truth that will truly set you free and bring you into a knowledge of the living God. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell posture before Daniel and paid in honour an order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the lords of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all his wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, people often use the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, as if that is a criticism, because old dogs should learn new tricks. They need to get on board with progress. They need to uh, come in line with modernity, and they need to uh, learn these new tricks in order to keep up. But what if the old dogs don't want to learn the new tricks because the old tricks are better? Well, I think this passage taps into or challenges the myth of human progress. The idea that things are inevitably just going to get better as human beings come up with solutions and solve problems together. That statue means many things, the statue in the dream. And I'm going to try and pick up on some of the sort of future predictions in chapter seven of this series. But that idea of gold to silver to bronze to iron shows that from God's perspective, humanity was not going to get better, it was going to get worse. This decrease in value, decrease in worth of the statue illustrates that idea until God's kingdom comes and smashes the entire thing and establishes itself on this planet. Now I've called this message Daniel and the Technicolor Dream in order to illustrate the idea that God is up to his old tricks. See, the Daniel story is very similar to the Joseph story that happens in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. A Jewish boy is taken into captivity in a foreign nation. He is tested in various ways and passes those tests with flying colours. He puts his neck on the line in different uh, ways to save people. He's then asked to interpret the dream of the ruler of the day and he gets it right. He is therefore promoted to the right hand of that ruler and he is given dominion over the whole nation. And he uses that new power to not only rule over the nation in the way that God would want, but also to elevate either his friends or his brothers up, increase their status so that they would rule alongside him. Now, I say it's God is up to his old tricks, but he's actually pointing forward to the greatest version of that trick. See, this Thursday is Ascension Thursday. It remembers the day when Jesus was lifted up into heaven. Now, sometimes we think that's a, just an odd event that happened. And what did it mean? Well, what it meant was very similar to what was happening to Daniel here. Jesus had essentially passed the test. He'd died and then he had risen from the dead, showing that he had defeated death. He'd 
been resurrected. And now he was ascending up into heaven and being sat at the right hand side of God the Father. He was sat now on the throne and he is given by God dominion over the whole world. And he starts to rule the world in his way, in God's way. But he doesn't just do it on his own. He elevates his friends, his brothers, to king-like status on the world so that they can establish his kingdom wherever they are. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, a few weeks ago, Howard preached to us about the whole idea of being a friend of God. Anyone who trusts in Jesus, who decides to follow him, is declared to be a friend of God, a friend of Jesus. And this passage illustrates to us the idea that picks up in the New Testament, that Jesus, to all those who put their faith in him, elevates them to an increased status and empowers them by his Holy Spirit to go out around this world and establish God's kingdom wherever they are. Now, I would just like to extend an invitation to you. In a few weeks' time on the 31st of May, we are going to be starting a course called the Every Course. It's a fantastic course that helps you understand how to live out God's kingdom wherever you are in the world. We're going to be running it on Zoom on uh, Sunday evenings, so it's open to everyone who wants to join us. And it's all about cultural renewal. It's about how to influence power. It's how to help people in poverty. It's how to use your gifts in a way to flourish, help the world flourish and bring out the best in the world and all sorts of things. So I'd invite you to that. But I'd also invite you now to just worship because right in the heart of this whole passage that Liz read earlier is just a small section of worship where Daniel cannot but help praise God for his incredible wisdom and power. So I'm just going to read that again and then we're going to go into this song as a response to what God is doing amongst us and has done for us. If you've got your Bible it's still chapter 2 and then verse 20. I'm just going to read this and then we'll go into this song. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we have asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Ultimately, God has made known to us his own son, Jesus Christ. He is the one that we worship now. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.